Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today I am on my own and I'm going to be talking about the origins of the English language and in particular in part one I'm going to be looking at a sort of early Celtic language, uh, Latin and then moving on to Old English which is the language that the Anglo-Saxons spoke and then in the next part I'll be talking about the Viking influences, the Norman influences and then Middle um, and early modern English all the way up until the present day um, and also of course the influences of foreign words in colonial times that have entered our vocabulary because it's quite surprising how many there are. So this is a very important topic actually because if you want to um, resist the linguistic subversion that some of the left do, you need a good understanding of the English language, how it works and particularly if you learn its history, it gives you a greater appreciation for how it is today and it makes it all the more egregious that they're trying to subvert meanings of words which have remained the same for nearly thousands of years, I suppose you could say. But there is a rich poetry and history in learning about the history of the English language and it gives you a much better understanding of how language functions more generally because there are lots of um, interplays between competing powers and you can see how language ebbs and flows, certain words come into favour, others fall out of favour and hopefully this appreciation will lead you to being able to better select words that appropriately articulate what you're trying to say and um, of course learning a history of England which um, this stories inextricably linked with is also very important I think because it's one of the most significant nations in human history and I know I'm a bit biased about that but I mean come on most of the world speaks English now I think approaching half of all of the people on earth speak the language that I'm speaking to you in now and so its significance cannot be understated so there are uh, lots of notable periods in, in English history and I just wanted to briefly go through some of the, the time periods that are relevant really. So you have the Celtic migrations that start seemingly after the end of the, the first ice age when uh, it wasn't a frozen tundra and it was actually possible to inhabit the island but particularly sort of 10,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, people started coming to the British Isles and these people are broadly referred to as Celtic but we'll get on to why that word isn't necessarily ideal to describe people because it's so general and loose that you lose a lot of nuance there. Um, of course you have the Roman occupation which uh, started in 43 AD and carried on all the way until 410 um, when they withdrew and then you have the sort of Germanic groups settling in the British Isles, then you have the Vikings, then you have the Normans, and then you have the Renaissance, which introduces lots of new terms. Of course, this is sort of um, getting towards early modern English, your sort of Shakespeare times. And then you've got the imperial exports, because of course Britain became a global power and Although we exchanged ideas and language and culture with other people, that you always get something in return, don't you? So with that sort of rough overview out the way of how things have worked, it's worth mentioning the origin of most um, 
modern day languages because they seem to have a shared origin. And that is in this the shared um, Indo-European language, as it's called. And um, there's this picture that um, will be put on screen now showing some of the shared words between lots of different languages. And that's um, not necessarily um, cross-pollination, although that does certainly happen, but it seems like there's enough similarities of languages that may have actually uh, developed in isolation of one another, in which it indicates that there's a, a shared point of origin. And so if we uh, have a look at this image here, it's a sort of artistic representation of the Indo-European uh, language tree. And it splits off into two different main trunks, if you will. Um, there's the Indo-Iranian, of course, meaning uh, in the Ind part is, of course, in reference to the Indus, as in the Indus Valley or India. Um, and so it's pretty self-evident what languages that is referring to. And of course, Iranian, you know where that, that space, right, is the sort of Persian languages, I suppose. Um, but we're going to be focusing largely on Europe because, of course, uh, West Asia is not really relevant to the history of <laughs> the English language, at least not until colonial times. Um, so with European, there are three main branches out of that, that trunk. You've got the Slavic languages, so obviously things like Russian, Polish, Czech. Um, you've got the Romance languages, so Spanish, Portuguese, Italian. I mean, this is unsurprising to most people. This isn't really news. And uh, of course, the Germanic ones, um, which, of course, English is part of. And of course, there's German. Um, and um, it doesn't seem to... Um, I think there's, there's some sort of Scandinavian ones, although they branch off earlier than a lot of the others, obviously English being one of the more recent ones, because of course it was amalgam of all of the other um, branches on, on that. I'm saying the word branch a lot, but you, you get the gist, right? The, the point being is that there's, there was a point whereby um, European languages would have been a lot closer together and there would have been a lot more commonality and unsurprisingly, um, it's diverted further and further apart. But I think about 46% of the world's population speaks an Indo-European language. So almost half of all people on earth speak a language with a shared origin, which I found very interesting. I thought that it would have been a lot more um, sort of organic and modular in that people in different locations would be somewhat isolated and they would develop their own languages in independence of other people. But of course, that's not really how language works, is it? It's more that people would, would have had some sort of working language before this Proto-Indo-European, but it seems to be the dominant one that has spread and then people have developed it further because you can't just create a language out of thin air. There has to be something that comes before, there's got to be a gentle progression because, of course, you don't just wake up one day and invent a new language. It probably takes a lot of um, concerted effort, actually, to create something like that, at least over a, a long period of time and incrementally. But um, there have been lots of attempts in academia to argue which geographic location actually corresponds to this um, 
origin point, and this has been going on for about 200 years, so uh, I'm certainly not going to be decisively resolving this, but there's been some research published um, relatively recently that's worth looking at, and I am going to in a second, but first I'm going to introduce the two sort of competing hypotheses, if you will. Um, the first and dominant one, really, um, depending on who you ask, is um, that language seems to originate in the Pontic-Caspian steppe, so what is sort of now areas of U Ukraine and southern Russia. And so that would be the origin point in which lots of languages spread out from. And the main competing hypothesis for this one is the, it's got two different names really, either the Anatolian, as in the Anatolian Peninsula, which is modern day Turkey, or farming hypothesis, which suggests an older origin which was tied to um, modern agricultural techniques. And by modern, I mean in the sum of all of human history, not you know, combine harvesters and, and tractors, but the domestication of things like wheat, for example, because, and of course, Anatolia is relatively close to the Fertile Crescent and lots of the places where it is suspected that um, some of the first um, peoples to domesticate crops came from. And we, we've talked about this before, both in um, epochs and in contemplations. But um, I think that this one is perhaps a little bit stronger because, of course, with this revolutionary means of getting food, in that you don't have to hunt together anymore, you can s stay in the same spot and tend to a plot of land and then you can build a civilization because you're in a stationary position. You can build, say, stone buildings, you can build towns, cities, you're not constantly nomadic, moving around, following game. And so this seems like a prerequisite to my mind of having a shared culture because it would have been um, fairly difficult to have a large enough culture to have these sort of more sophisticated languages because you have a smaller human group, you don't necessarily need to, to develop as sophisticated a language as you might in say a town or city where you might be talking to people who you haven't actually met before. It's possible, you know, you, maybe there's trade, but of course this is a little bit down the line. So um, this sort of Anatolian area as well is sort of south of the, the Caucasus as well, so, so sort of Georgia. It's, it's a pretty broad area. Um, you, there'll probably be a map on screen where you can see um, but this is also an important area for human history more generally, and I, I covered in my mini-series talking about the, or, about the origin of humanity, funnily enough, that there's a place in Georgia, Demonisi, where there were early hominids, certainly not, it wouldn't be fair to call them humans as we know them today, uh, 1.8 million years ago, they still hadn't discovered fire or um, sort of uh, later Stone Age tools. They were still using slightly sharpened rocks. Um, they hadn't fashioned them into, say, spears or bows yet. Um, and they were actually chewing up the food for a, an elderly, toothless person who would be incapable of eating it otherwise, which shows that even two million years ago, um, our, our human ancestors cared for um, they're elderly and clearly had bonds with them because this would be a very 
difficult and strenuous thing to do. You can't, certainly couldn't imagine an animal um, who would chew up food and then basically spit it out and, and give it to another animal that wasn't, say, their offspring. Obviously, you know, birds tend to do that. They, they eat food and then regurgitate it back. But it's, it's rare to see that outside of raising young is the point I'm trying to make. But it's just an interesting place for human history, that sort of area. And I think that there's a, a lot of evidence for that. And um, this recent paper that I was talking about um, is that of Hegarty et al. And it was published this year in, in July. So it's relatively recent. There's not been enough time necessarily to um, get a reasonable impression from the linguistic community, which I'm certainly not a part of. Um, but it seems like a, a pretty good attempt at understanding this origin point problem because they were basically a team of linguists and geneticists and they just used the best evidence they could from each of the respective fields to try and pinpoint two locations based on both obviously linguistics and genetics to try and corroborate between the two fields where these origin points may lie. And their conclusion was that there's a sort of hybrid hypothesis. And this may seem like fence sitting, but I think there is something to it. In that, if you're being pedantic, the point of origin is probably this Anatolian point of origin from about 8,100 years ago, they claim. Um, and so that's, that's based at the bottom of the Caucasus, sort of uh, at the base of the Anatolian Peninsula, where it attaches to the Asian continent. I suppose you could say. And then this fed onto this other center um, in the, the Pontic Caspian steppe, which then spread to Europe about 5,000 years ago, they seem to think. And so there, there's still some of that Anatolian influence. So areas of the, the Balkans and the Greeks would have got it directly from Anatolia, whereas um, this Pontic Caspian language seems to have gone more to central and northern and western Europe. And so that might explain some of the differences between, say, French, German, Italian, um, Spanish, Portuguese, um, Czech, some of the Slavic languages, and, say, Greek, because it's much easier for the former languages um, to be picked up by a speaker from outside. So, say, you know, it'd be much easier for me to learn French than it would be to learn Greek, or it'd be much easier for an Italian to learn German than it would be to learn, well, actually, that's a bad example because there's lots of cross-pollination, but a Spaniard to learn German than it might be to learn Greek. And that may well be because of the closer point of origin uh, to one another. But I'm going to um, read a little extract from their study, just to summarise what they thought in their own words. And it says, the authors of this study um, proposed a new hybrid hypothesis for the origin of the Indo-European languages with an ultimate homeland south of the Caucasus and subsequent branch northwards onto the steppe as a secondary homeland for some branches of Indo-European entering Europe with the later uh, Yamnaya and Corded Ware associated expressions. Um, I'm not going to talk about those. Um, Ancient um, DNA and language phylogenetics thus combined to suggest that the resolution 
um, to the 200-year-old Indo-European enigma lies in a hybrid of the farming and steppe hypotheses. So yeah, it's more or less how I characterised it, I would hope. They're, they're just trying to say that, yes, it's got this point of origin in Anatolia, but also the, the Pontic Caspian steppe was very important for Europe. And I think that that seems to reflect my understanding of genetics, albeit, you know, it's not comparable to that of a, a full-time academic geneticist, but I've done a fair amount of work looking at the genetics of Europe and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's also worth mentioning as well, a random bit of trivia before we move on to some of the Celtic languages, that the English word for free, as in the number, um, comes from Proto-Indo-European, um, the word Treyes, um, which is rather similar to the Spanish word tres, which of course also means the number three. So interesting stuff. I think there's still some elements of it to this day. Um, I didn't want to provide an exhaustive list because there's a lot to get through. And um, if Indo-European is the source of most languages, it's not that interesting to distinguish um, what comes from there because one would assume that everything stems from that eventually. So moving on to Celtic, um, which is a term that many people have a problem with because it's such a blanket term. Um, just in the British Isles alone, for example, there'd be lots of different tribes that may have more similarities in language with each other than they might say someone in Eastern Europe, but they would have their, their own unique dialects most likely. It's difficult to say because of course they didn't write anything down and there's not much in the way of written records. Uh, the, we basically have to rely on things like Roman accounts of the nature of their language and things like that. Um, but there are aspects of a shared culture there. There may be some similarities, but it's useful to, to kind of lump them together because they reflect a period of time, um, particularly in the, the history of Britain, and they're the sort of substrate in which other languages could develop. So these other tribes could even be worshipping different gods. So how shared a culture it is really depends on how willing you are to draw a line um, and how open-minded you are to these differences. But there are also multiple migrations. So different Celtic peoples replaced other Celtic peoples who were far more different culturally speaking. So there was an entirely different people in, say, the, the Upper Paleolithic than, the, in, say, the Bronze Age, uh, particularly the Late Bronze Age. They're genetically different, distinct. And so it's, again, an inaccurate term. But I just wanted to emphasise that because I think that when people talk about this sort of thing, it tends to be misrepresented a little bit. It's probably worth mentioning as well that um, following on from the Celtic period, which we're not quite done with yet, don't worry, but there was a, a stigma placed on the Celtic languages. They were always seen as some of the lowest languages and I'm not entirely sure why that is. I imagine it would be that it's the, the language of the, the subjugated people and therefore if they've lost it, you know, lost their land, lost the war, then their culture must be inferior and this mindset, of course, exists throughout all of human history and it's only today that uh, is the unique outlier that people say oh no all cultures are equal blah 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 um, but of course 
you know, the, the quality of someone's language may not determine their success in battle. So it's a little bit of a flawed way of looking at it. But I think that that's one of the the main motivations um, to suppress this sort of language. Although it wasn't actively suppressed in the same way as perhaps in other areas in other times. There are actually some aspects of the Celtic language, Celtic languages, I should say, um, there, of course, there wasn't a mono language, although some may have been able to communicate with one another, some tribes that is. Um, but um, John McWhorter in particular um, identified something known as the meaningless do, or at least that he's the person that drew it to my attention. And this is a feature of both Cornish and Welsh, which are of course languages that are of Celtic origin, Cornish being uh, a language that is pretty much a, a dead language, although there are some enthusiasts trying to keep it alive, but no one speaks it as their native language anymore. I think the last native died in 1777 in Cornwall, which is the county the furthest south in England. I'm very familiar with it because I grew up in the neighbouring county and spent a lot of time in Cornwall. So I'm actually quite familiar with Cornish because you, you get it on the road signs and there are lots of names people's surnames even, um, as well as just coming into contact with it. Um, but Welsh as well, much um, more common. There are plenty of people um, in Wales who speak Welsh and do so sometimes akin to a first language, although I don't pretend to be any kind of expert. I've been, only been to Wales a couple of times. So I'm sure there are plenty of Welsh people who are far more uh, qualified, if you will, to talk about their own language. And I'm uh, going to be humble and, and, and say uh, as little as possible, but this meaningless do is uh, exemplified in this sentence. Do you walk to work? So, of course, the do being the part at the start. There's nothing unusual about that in, in modern English, is there? It seems like a perfectly reasonable question. But this is almost unique to English, this, this way of phrasing things. Normally, in other languages, um, I, I imagine there are many people who um, speak English as a second language watching this, and so they'll probably be able to corroborate this. The question would normally be something like, you walk to work? And the, the question would be implied by the sort of inflection at the end of the sentence. And you wouldn't need the word do at the start because the content would be obvious, but that seems unusual to a native English speaker because it seems like it's missing something. And of course it's missing the word do, which doesn't necessarily um, need to be there. It, the meaning is still conveyed perfectly fine with the, the latter form, but it, it doesn't necessarily sound right. And that's a, a feature of these um, Celtic languages that seem to be on the British Isles. Of course, we don't have as much record of Brythonic or the Brythonic languages of England um, as we might do Cornish or Welsh, which survive for far longer than the Brythonic languages did. And so we can compare them. And of course, uh, Welsh still exists with, with fluent speakers to this day. And um, another aspect is that of the suffix ing. Um, it indicates the present tense, and this appears to be of Brythonic origin as well. 
as in I am drinking, um, that seems to indicate that you're doing something now. Whereas normally it would be there would be additional words rather than adding a suffix to a word to indicate it, and it's, it's quite Germanic to just compound things into a single word, isn't it? You know, you, you get this in modern German quite a lot, whereby you, there'll be two concepts and they just get put together into one word rather than uh, split up. Which still, you know, there are still compound words in other languages, but just not with the same frequency. I don't think. So there are plenty of um, words that seem to have this early um, Celtic influence, if you will, that we use today. And of course, they would have probably been pronounced um, slightly differently and maybe spelt differently as well. Well, certainly spelt differently to modern English. Um, and these words are as follows: bucket, crockery, noggin, as in your head, gob, as in your mouth, uh, truant, as in I didn't go to school today. Iron, which itself comes from Proto-Indo-European, but um, particularly how it's spelt and, and pronounced and approached today, it seems to be more influenced by Celtic. But the original meaning of the word, interestingly enough, in the Indo-European language was blood. Um, I suppose that's a reference to it in its molten form. Uh, the word bog, uh, meaning you know, muddy, swampy, not the colloquial term in English meaning going to the toilet. Um, bother, as in being annoying. Hooligan, as in football hooligan. Uh, galore, as in an abundance of something. A slew, uh, is again, an assortment of things. Sogan, meaning a war cry. Um, whiskey, which translates to water of life. Um, <laughs> um, I'm not going to make any comment about uh, the uh, the approach of some of the extremities of the British Isles. Um, Druid, which I, I find as one of the most interesting words to come up out of this sort of origin, because it literally translates to oak knower. And um, I've, I've covered Celtic mythology before, and the oak is like the premier tree um, associated with spirituality. Um, to the, the sort of broadly Celtic religions, at least in, in Britain anyway, of course. Elsewhere they may have had different practices and to talk of the Celtic people as if they're all monoculture is wrong. It's like saying all Europeans or all people in the Northern Hemisphere, I mean, they, they were so dispersed that um, across a large swathe of land that it wouldn't be fair to, to, to generalise in that sense. But this also stems from a Proto-Indo-European uh, combination of words. It's like a compound word. And from Doru, or Duru, meaning tree, and Weird, to see, or Duru Weird, which um, is interesting because it might imply how Druid is uh, what was pronounced much further in the past, because of course it wouldn't be pronounced Druid um, 2,000 years ago, say. Doru Weird. There it is. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching, and goodbye.